everyone, and welcome to Small Talk, a podcast for pediatric nurses by pediatric nurses. My name is Denise Downey, and I'll be your host today. I'm one of the professional development specialists from the emergency department for nursing. <coughs> and along with me today is Teresa Shannon and Kate Donovan. I'll let them introduce themselves for you. Hi, everyone. I'm Teresa Shannon. I am an education coordinator uh, from inpatient medicine. Hi, I'm Kate Donovan. I'm the Clinical Director of Innovation for the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator, the simulation program in inpatient medicine. All right. Welcome, everyone. And I am so excited to introduce our special guest today, Mary Devine, who is the Director of Emergency Management here at Boston Children's Hospital. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. This is great, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to let our listeners know a little bit about the Emergency Management Department and your role in the department. So welcome aboard. And I'm wondering if we can get started just by having you talk a little bit about the Emergency Management Department as a whole and what your role is here at Children's. Sure. So I am the Director of Emergency Management. Um, we have a small yet mighty department of uh, myself, the program manager, and three program coordinators. Um, within that department, we plan for and respond to any hospital operational disruption. So this can be something as small as um, machine down in lab or a, an application downtime to anything as big as a bombing or uh, COVID-19 or uh, systems downtime. So that's one half of our department. And then the other part of our responsibilities really relies on regulations. So the most fun topic that people love to discuss and be a part of is, is really regulation compliance. We have over 90 Joint Commission regulations that we have to make sure that the hospital is compliant with. So those are our two main goals within emergency management. Um, and like I said, our, our tiny team definitely uh, works hard on both of those goals. Wow. I feel like you guys do so much. You are like the strong, silent type that just kind of hovers in the background until something happens and then you jump in to save us, which is amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you think we're stalkers, I feel like. <laughs> <potentially>. <laughs> no, yes, not that at all. <laughs> we do like to hover. That's that's definitely true. We get paged about 180 times a year for different disruptions, and they can either be minimal and just be notifications, or they can become large emergencies. And that's when we have our hospital incident command system that is activated, and that happens about 38 times a year. So that's, that's normally our cadence, but it totally depends on the year. Um, obviously, 2020 has been quite different. <laughs> so just depends. What are some of the situations where you would activate the HICS? I'm not sure our listeners know exactly what the HICS system is. So the hospital incident command system is a group of hospital employees that are trained to respond to emergencies in a specific way. So we take certain individuals out of their normal role and place them in an emergency response role. So for Boston Children's, probably the most visible of this is our administrator on duty. So we have 13 
senior level individuals who act as the administrator on duty. And they rotate on-call shifts and we go through training together and we review responses and they're pretty much just ready to respond to any emergency. Um, But we have positions throughout the hospital that do this. So we have a lab on-call person, we have a research on-call person, we have a safety on-call. There's about, I think, around 15 positions that rotate weekly and take on call. So the thought process is when something happens, we page the group, we come together and kind of assess the situation, set up a plan, and then operationalize that plan during an emergency. Um, So there's actually hundreds of people that we train um, annually in these different roles, and they just switch every week, ready for any action that might be coming. And they're ready at a moment's notice too, is that right? Yeah, so we get paged at any time, um, overnight, during the day. We like the during the day responses just slightly better. (laughs) Um, I think everybody likes the during the day responses slightly better. Um, But yeah, that can be any time. Most recently, we've had a series of weeks where there's been ISD disruptions um, overnight, so or late in the evening. So that's when we get everybody together and try to assess the situation and the impact and talk to the units to see what they're doing and, and what struggles they have, and then kind of come up with a plan. Mm-hmm. So that's basically what the, the hospital incident man system does. Wow, that's pretty great. I'm really curious. I know that COVID is quite a thing and it's very popular right now. And you've been so busy and so instrumental with the hospital's response. But I'm just wondering, what was life like for you before COVID? Like, what were some of the things that you were involved with before COVID hit us? I think just like everyone, thinking about the time before COVID makes me a little nostalgic. I, <laughs> I, I, I still miss restaurants. I mean, I go to outdoor restaurants. I miss, I miss a life that <laughs> is different and parties and weddings and all of that. But for the department, yeah, it was definitely different in that we could handle multiple projects at the same time, as well as deal with the emergencies that came towards us. Denise and I have worked on many a project in the emergency department throughout the years. Even last summer, we had these wonderful disaster simulations where we had our um, Code Orange, our our hazmat and decon plan uh, tested and brought out the decon tent and trained a bunch of people. Um, Those are some of the projects that we do normally. And the biocontainment unit is is another big part of our responsibility of helping organize some of the exercises with that. We've done a series of active shooter tabletops throughout the institution. So we normally do a lot of exercises. Even last year, we did 33 exercises. Um, And this year has been totally different since since COVID because it really just took all of the resources in the department to even just maintain the command center and make sure that the command center was running efficiently and effectively and also organizing all of the documents, policies, guidance from CDC and DPH, as well as structuring our leadership briefings and doing kind of all of the planning work behind the response. Wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> so if there was a time for COVID, I feel like we all probably can't remember it very well. But during that time frame, you know, we really uh, tried to push forward a lot of different initiatives for planning and response. And then another part of our department is being a liaison with the other hospitals, as well as the Department of Public Health. So normally we meet with the conference Boston Teaching Hospital, so all the other emergency managers and the other hospitals at least twice monthly and plan like large scale citywide initiatives too. Um, so that was another part of our, our life before COVID. Whereas now we meet, we just talk about COVID and <laughs> what are you guys doing and what's the solution for that? And, and it's, it's definitely changed the narrative quite a bit. So then COVID hit. Can you talk about how you felt when you realized that COVID is a thing and that this is reality and this is serious? What was that like from an emergency management perspective? It's like you practice for this for your entire career and then all of a sudden it's showtime. How did that feel? Yeah, so it's it was such an interesting progression, honestly. And I think for all of us, the first I heard about the novel coronavirus or the Chinese coronavirus when it first started was really after Christmas this year. And it was it started to get some press together. And at that point, we decided, okay, let's let's have some uh, conversations with infection control and see what they, are saying, and we've done that with many other small outbreaks that have happened, you know, across the world, things, things pop up and we start that narrative. And then it started to get bigger (laughs) and bigger. And then the travel restrictions came out at the end of January. And that's when we started to activate. And then it just kept getting bigger and bigger. The thing that surprised me the most was how rapid it, it really came to Boston and came to Boston in a big way. Even in February, we were saying, okay, is it really going to come? Is it not? Like they were doing so much screening at the airports um, and there were all kinds of, of global travel restrictions going on and like Wuhan was totally locked down. So it was, it was still a question. And then all of a sudden it just escalated so quickly and then March hit and then it, it just escalated even more. I mean, even with all of the planning that I've gone through and in my career, but also through school, understanding what like a, a shelter in place order <laughs> is and having that be enacted in such a short amount of time was chaotic, but also um, very surprising, even for the industry. I think we were all very surprised that things escalated so quickly. And also just some of the guidance coming out of the federal government was very challenging. Um, I know they were learning a lot too, but I think just the rapid pace that everything came out was just very surprising (laughs) for sure. Yeah. Things changed so quickly that it was, I don't know how you kept up. And I remember one remarkable thing that um, a few weeks ago, when I'd run into you, you were telling me how you finally got back to your office and you realized your calendar was still set on March. 
<laughs> yes, yeah. So, so we were open in the command center from the very beginning of March until July, and I hadn't been to my office at all uh, since that time because we were spending literally twelve to sometimes. 16 hour days in the command center every day. And yeah, it's, it's, it's like a time capsule, you know, I was very surprised. One of my plants is still alive. So I'm, I'm resilience is a thing, but, um, but yeah, it was very surprising about how, just how long and the amount of support that was needed during COVID. And even today, about half of our day is still COVID completely. And, and we're trying to deal with the changing guide, guidance that continues to happen and also help try to navigate some of the um, policies for staff. We're still getting a bunch of questions, um, which is we welcome. We welcome that dialogue um, to try to figure out what's best for everybody in the hospital. But it, it's still quite a bit of work for sure. So I know from the emergency department perspective, I know that you've been so busy and you've been working so hard. And I'm wondering from an inpatient perspective, Teresa, if you can just speak to really how emergency management affected the inpatient world and inpatient nurses. Because I know Mary and I, we bounce back and forth all the time with stuff that's going on. But I'm just wondering from an inpatient side, what was the impact that emergency management had on you guys? I think probably one of the most visible to the staff on the floor would be the biocontainment unit and the amount of training that went on and how we had to rethink how we, uh, we operate on a, a daily basis from how we enter a patient's room to even how we eat lunch um, and get report from each other. I know on our unit, the biocontainment unit was huge with helping us with training. We as well ran some simulations and we learned a lot from that as far as, like you were saying, Mary, it's it, a lot of things kind of evolved. We were learning day by day. People are identifying opportunities for breaching, PPE. Yeah. So I think that was probably the the most visible for everybody. And also the AOD advisories, trying to keep up with all the advisories that were really coming out a couple of times a day. Yeah, I think those AOD advisories, I still apologize for how much information and when those were sent out because it was a lot for a lot of people. The one thing that was beautiful, Mary, it was like a, a trail, though. You could go back when people ask questions, and it was this great communication trail that would go back and kind of revisit. And, you know, just I, I thought it was, ex- it was excellent communication coming from emergency management and all the um, from the command center. So we to help guide us um, in our daily operations. Yeah, I agree with what Teresa says for sure. The communication was top notch. Even as healthcare workers, one of the challenges that we have and continue to have as everyone does is navigating through all of the information that's given to us via social media, via the news, via what's coming in. So for myself, I really looked at what you guys are were handing over to us as truth and trusted the knowledge that you shared with us. So I thought that was brilliant. I do think a great example that you mentioned, Teresa, is the the biocontainment unit nurses did such a phenomenal job in trying to, from a command center perspective, right, we meet daily, we still meet daily at a leadership meeting and have biocontainment leadership on there and try to disseminate these new policies to both infection control and biocontainment so then they can go out into the floors which is amazing, um, just the uh, 
I want to say acceptance, but encouragement and flexibility of, of the staff, particularly on the biocontainment unit and, and in infection control to try to take these concepts and make them applicable for all of the different units and all of the different specialties, um, which is so challenging, you know, and, and the hard part was we knew it, we knew how challenging some of these policies that were being thrown on us were going to be, you know. So really the flexibility of all, all of our staff during this time has really been amazing. I mean, policy changes daily, PPE changes daily, PPE shortages. Like, I, I think that has really made me appreciate, especially people on the floors um, <laughs> and their, their flexibility, because things at the beginning of the day would sometimes completely change by the end of the day. So um, our staff is, is truly amazing. I'll never forget one of our nurses as we were building our biocontainment team from the ER itself. One of our nurse leaders described it as we're building the bike as we ride it. And I just feel that that is so true because things were happening so quickly and changing so fast. Could you have ever imagined that this kind of thing would happen? I, I honestly, no, I feel, I feel like, you know, even in studying like the 1918 flu plan, pandemic and, and things like that, it was, it was just so different from all of the other experiences that we've had. And I think based on the environment that we're in, the times that we're in, the technology that we have, the rapid pace of <laughs> everything is just aggressive <laughs> at this time. I mean, some of the things that we put in place would normally take us six months or a year to do. And we were given two days, you know, to, to put some of these uh, initiatives in place. So I think that really just accelerated everything. And I think science is at a different point now. <laughs> the, the global community is at a different place. You know, we had many of our leaders in the institution talking to China, talking to Italy and, and saying, what are you guys seeing and how are you implementing things? And so I think just the, the times that we're in really accelerated things very quickly and, and made it <laughs> a, a pace that was pretty insane, especially in that March, April, May timeframe where we were just trying to implement things and keep everyone as, as safe as possible. You know, when, when people are really worried about their safety, I think it's so important to make sure that everything can work for all staff, but also is valid information. You know, there was so much out there that wasn't. So, so yeah, it's, it's 2020. It's, it's yeah. quite a year. 2020 vision, right? Yeah, yes. That's funny you say that, Denise. I was just thinking hindsight's 2020. And <laughs> on that topic, Mary, I think we've, I know in the inpatient world, we've definitely learned lessons about infection prevention practices. And as we've said, a lot of this is we've been learning as we go. But from our level, we can see how what we've learned so far from the changes we've implemented is how we can improve our infection prevention practices, even beyond the pandemic as we're heading into flu season now. I'm just wondering, I know it takes a while to sit back and process everything that's been going on, but from your department's perspective, have you got to the point of thinking about lessons learned about managing emergencies from COVID? 
Definitely. So we are starting our after action process, which is quite substantial for COVID. Um, we have after action reports for every emergency that we do, but specifically for COVID, what we've done is sat down with different subject matter experts who implemented policies during the time of COVID, and we've done a debrief with them and also have tried to capture the process so that if we have to go back to where we were in the, just like you said, flu season is coming, things are, things are potentially coming, then we have the process both documented and and really talk through what went well and what didn't. I would say our biggest lessons learned from the department, one of them, and I I just kind of talked about the rapid pace of change. And at the time, I don't think we knew anything different, but I think it could have helped (laughs) if we just paused on a couple of things and tried to determine priorities of implementing change and maybe a a stronger time frame um, for implementing change. So there was a time in March where based on situations that were out of our control, uh, we had to implement certain policies very, very quickly. And a lot of those came out on Friday nights, which is the worst time (laughs) for for any policy change um, to kind of come out. And um, we did implement a rule that we were no longer going to be implementing large scale policy change on, on Friday evenings and really try to do that during the day and during working hours during the middle of the week. So that's one of our, our bigger uh, lessons learned that we, we tried to implement during the response as well. And then there's a million things that we would have done differently. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that's, uh, that's every response. I think uh, one thing that we do talk about is just how, uh, how many hours we were working and, and being in the command center for a lot of time, which was needed. Um, But I think it also accelerated stuff. So we are talking about resiliency and self-care and backup positions to make sure that if we do have to go into that place again, we have a little bit more um, resilience and also flexibility to implement things in still quickly, just a little bit more thought out and potentially a little bit easier for all all staff to to grasp some of these changes. So there's a whole process in place for that. But yes, we have we have already learned <laughs> many many a thing um, from COVID, which is great. I will say one of the things that I think worked very very well that we're hoping to um, continue, especially for large large scale emergencies. Uh, are the town halls and the chiefs also had a meeting where all of the division chiefs came together with the ACNOs to talk about things that were changing and, and also updates from the command center. And I think both of those venues were extremely helpful in trying to disseminate information and to try to give some background on why we were changing policies. The AOD advisory is great, but the AOD advisory is really meant to be all business and to say, here's here's the change. And potentially there's a couple of sentences, sentences of context, 
but we really wanted to be as clear as possible in those messages and get the important part of the message out, which was, here's how to be safe versus, well, here's all the data around this and and the process around why we're changing this and the thought process and potentially professional societies have weighed in, that kind of stuff. So the town halls, we really thought that that was an appropriate way to kind of disseminate more information and to have that, the ability to have questions from the audience as well. Yeah, I think the town hall was so effective, I think, because like you said, it was interactive and people did have the opportunity to ask questions. And I feel like that dialogue really was uh, what pulled people in and they wanted to hear what was being said, which I thought was brilliant. That was actually one of our guiding principles in the command center was try to be as transparent and fair as possible. I don't think this is a secret, but sometimes Boston Children's can operate in silos and it can operate with, you know, who you know and what kind of money you have. And um, yeah, never, never. But as a guiding principle from our command center staff and our, our leadership group, it was we need to be as clear as possible and any policy needs to be able to be implemented throughout the institution. So that was uh, one thing that we really stood by throughout the the pandemic. And we also wanted to make sure that it doesn't matter where you work, you need to feel safe when you come in. It doesn't matter if you're on the floor, it doesn't matter if you're in a clinic, if you're in an administrative area, it's not fair if people, some people don't feel safe coming to work. So that was that was our guiding principle there. Yeah, that's an important point for sure. So as we make our way through this COVID pandemic, I feel like people think we're we're almost emerging at the end of it, but I also feel like we might be fooling ourselves. But what do you think, especially as kids are going back to school, what do you think the new normal is going to be for us after this? It's a really good question. It's something we frequently ask our hospital epidemiologists and DPH and the CDC on our calls, you know, what's gonna happen? And what's, what's the flu season going to look like? What's 2021 going to look like? When can I go back into a bar and feel safe again? <laughs> and I think <laughs> the honest answer is we, we just don't know. Where we're at right now, I think, is somewhat of the new normal. We're going to be in this phase for a while. Some people say until a vaccine. Some people say we're going to need even longer to make sure that, you know, everybody's safe and, and we've really kind of gotten over the hump of this. So um, I wish I had better information for you. Uh, I think everyone is also pretty nervous about schools opening. There's many task forces um, from children's that are trying to help advise here in Massachusetts best practices. But I think it's, I don't think we are anticipating COVID going away anytime soon. And I think we're ready for a surge in the fall if it happens, especially with the onset of flu. So everybody in the world should get their flu shot and get it early and wear their mask and you know do all of the things because it's, it's not going away. Wow. I'm, I know I'm, I'm a happy person. This is like uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> it's reality though. It's reality. It's good. What kind so, of tips do you give to people who have fatigue? 
who have pandemic fatigue, if you will, are just exhausted with all of this. I do think that people are are sick of it, honestly. I I think we all see it. We all see it when we walk around. And I get sick of it, let's face it. I, <laughs> I, I would love to be outside not wearing a mask, and I would love to have a giant party and see family members that are far away. But, you know, you have to kind of take it day by day and month by month and be with the people that you can be with and try to find alternate ways to be around people during this time. And like I said, good news is I should have bought stock in Zoom at the beginning of this because, man, has that exploded. And thank God for Amazon. I mean, good Lord. But I think we do have outlets that we can continue. And it's about making safe choices. I'm sure you guys all have friends who are on completely different ends of the spectrum. You know, I have friends who haven't left the house since February. And then I have friends who, you know, are like, oh, you don't need me to wear a mask if we go for a walk outside. And I'm like, no, I, I do. So it's about talking to those individuals and saying, okay, well, if you've been in the house since March, how do you feel about going outside for a walk and masked and six feet away from everybody? And what what is your comfort level and how can you kind of get through the day? Because once again, it, it isn't going away, unfortunately. Yeah, true. So thinking about preparation, general preparation for a next time, what would be your recommendations, not only to the institution, but also the general public? So if we ever had the opportunity to prepare for something like this, what should we have done or what could we do for next time? So it's a, it's a great question. I think one of the things that we've been very lucky with being Boston Children's is we have a very strong supply chain department and we did have a stockpile of PPE that we could use throughout this pandemic. Now, obviously, we can't have a stockpile for four years <laughs> of all the things that are needed, but the stockpile really did help us through this, and we are hoping to continue that. I think personally, uh, everybody has has their should have their personal preparedness plans, and <laughs> and have have some sort of uh, thought process of, you know, what if something happens? And, and I think uh, part of that is thinking about your own resiliency and what type of person you are and what you need. So I am an extreme extrovert. I don't know if you can tell that on a podcast, but I really like to be around people all the time. And during this time, you know, you, you just can't be. And so that has been obviously a major change. I mean, yes, I was in the hospital for months and, you know, in the command center, but even in the command center, we limited it to five people in there um, based on safety. And it's about trying to figure out how to be resilient during these times. And like I said before, you know, Zoom, FaceTime, all of these different tools can really help make things feel a little bit more normal. It's not the same. I'll never say it's the same, <laughs> but being able to have, you know, my book club on Zoom and still be able to meet creates a sense of, of normalcy and, and makes the connection still available so you can kind of get through the hard times. The resiliency and the mental health support 
that I think everybody needs during times of extreme disruption is, is real. And you don't even realize it, you know, like I didn't even realize the person I was in March until July, you know, and I was like, wow, my husband, he's still with me and that's great. Um, and, and he was really great to me, but like, yeah, I was definitely not my best self. So it's about trying to put those tools in your toolbox and be as a resilient person as you can be. That's great advice, Mary. Thank you for that. I would like to say though, during this whole COVID epidemic, it has really shined a light on having a career in emergency management and really showing the work that you do and your dedication to your work. That's been impressive. And just for our listeners, if anyone out there is interested in a career in emergency management, what would you tell them to do? So there are many ways to get engaged in emergency management, even if people are just interested in what it is. Uh, There are many volunteer opportunities. So everybody knows about the Red Cross. There are different teams on the Red Cross that are integrated into the emergency management system on a city level. There are teams like the Medical Reserve Corps is a team that is managed by the Boston Public Health Commission that individuals can join if they want to be involved in the community in a, in a way in support of emergency management at that city level. People are more interested. There are whole degrees in emergency management and, and there are many FEMA trainings <laughs> online, which are really dry. <laughs> and so, but they're great background about how the hospital incident command system works and, and how the system of emergency management functions. So those are some of the ways I also frequently get outreach from individuals who are interested in the field, and there are many of us out there who can provide guidance. All of us came upon this career in in different ways, so um, it's always good to ask your local emergency manager about that as well. Do you think this will be a role that will expand to other industries? Yeah, I definitely think that's true. Um, It's an interesting field, right? It's only been really around since after 9-11 and even in hospitals after Katrina. So we're looking at about 15 years and it just continuously expands. So even in uh, companies, now they have like business continuity people who pretty much do emergency management on the business end of things. So I do think it's just going to completely expand. And we've had many institutions reach out to us throughout the pandemic to ask us, okay, what should we do in this situation? What's your advice on navigating, you know, the the federal stockpile system? How, how do you structure the responses, the communications? So I do think we're, we're here to stay and it's, it's likely that we're going to expand. Does emergency management have a role outside of the hospital? So things like the recent protests and some of the riots that have happened in the past, is there a role for emergency management to be involved in that? So we had to monitor a lot of the riots that were happening, especially at the beginning. So anytime there's any external events in the city, we have to not only watch them, but we have a system with all of the other hospitals and the city that we have to monitor to see if they're uh, doing tear gas. And if they are, then we call Denise or someone in the ED. (laughs) And we have to set up the... 
the, our small scale decon process, which uh, definitely started happening. I believe that was the beginning of June. Right. And that was just the worst timing. You know, we were so tired, but obviously, you know, the world was pent up and, and it was a different time. So we still have to monitor all of the events that are happening. Mary, it's interesting. We could probably have you back for two more segments. You know, it was great learning what the emergency management group does. You don't, you don't even think about it. And I also loved your adding in about people being kind when they communicate with the department. Cause I, I know like, experiencing people's frustration firsthand with, I heard this, they were saying this last week, now we're doing this. And it's like, you know, same thing. We're like, we're all in this together. We're all <laughs> figuring this out, just like we're figuring it out. You're figuring it out at home. The no, hospital, it's you know, it's so true. I, I feel like it's so hard because we would get frustrated by the things that we would have to do, you know? So and we would be like, really, we have to do this or new guidance would come out. And then all of a sudden we'd have to, you know, put that out to 20,000 people who then would just come in and be like, why are we doing this? You know? So, and we're like, we totally get it. But yeah, we're, we're all frustrated together. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good way to put that, Teresa. <laughs> But Mary, this has been great. And I am really excited to showcase your work to the rest of the nursing community here at Boston Children's, because I feel like they don't know enough about you and your program and the actual impact that you have on every single thing in this hospital. Like I said, I feel like you're the strong, silent type. And I want to showcase that. I want to show people what wonderful work you're doing and your team and how you know you're such leaders for the institution and we really stand behind you so thank you i super appreciate it you know it's we we are kind of behind the scenes and most of us kind of like it that way too but it's <laughs> it is i super appreciate it because yeah it's it's there's lots of stuff that happens you know oh i know <laughs> for sure yeah <laughs> And it's so true, like so much of the hospital, I think a lot of attention's paid to like the nurses and the doctors, you know, hear about our roles quite a bit. But really, we're so dependent on everything that comes from your department and your ability to disseminate communication and coordinate all the both up and down the chain of command. I know we had the experience on the front line of taking some things into our own hands and uh, realizing, you know, we can't do it that way. You know, you can send it up the chain of command, but it really, a lot of the practice changes, you have to keep regulatory in mind and all of the things coming down the chain of command too. Yeah, this is extremely helpful. You know, you mentioned about the town halls. I think one of the things that did, I know when they were going on, we brought them up in our classroom and tried to get staff in the best we could to watch them. And it did a bigger sense of community and understanding of what's going on outside of our own unit. Um, And a lot of times you don't think about the other uh, people in the hospital and what a huge role they are behind us, supporting us and uh, the uh, policies and our practice, et cetera. And I would say that's one of the best things about the job is you get to see the whole hospital, you know, and how everybody kind of uh, works together and get to be amazed (laughs) by what everybody has to deal with in all of their different areas. You know, it's, I really think no one has an easy job at at Boston Children's, but um, it is fascinating to kind of see all of all of that from the thousand foot view or 50,000 foot view and and also try to figure out how to communicate with everybody too at the same time. When you think about COVID in general, what are the three most positive, in your opinion, results? 
Wow, what a great question. I love that positivity. <laughs> and it's hard. That is a hard <laughs> question. <laughs> I would say um, the three most positive things. One, people wash their hands now. I swear <laughs> that, that that happens. And like, that is absolutely amazing. So I would say that would be one of my favorite things from COVID. The second thing is creativity in a world of chaos. So even outside of the hospital environment, trying to have restaurants adapt their space to uh, COVID guidelines has been really amazing. And within the hospital too, some of the innovation that that has happened, the camaraderie, going through something together really uh, brings people close closer together. And I think those would be yeah, the three things that I would say were the positive outcomes for sure. Yeah, those are great. Denise, what are your thoughts on that? On the positive thing? Yeah. I'm going to stockpile toilet paper. <laughs> I think I'm going to take uh, plexiglass then. <laughs> Teresa, what do you have for that? I think about the silver lining and that it's slowed us all down and we are, are made our lives a lot simpler on many levels. Once we got past uh, the immediate dealing with how we're going to deal with it and accepting um, that it is a new way of life for an unforeseen future for all of us. So true. I didn't even know there were kids in my neighborhood oh. until <laughs> until COVID. Like, had no idea. And now people are bike riding with their families. I, it's it feels like a different time. I think yeah, it's I, also been kind of cool to watch the definition of a frontline worker change. So it's no longer just a nurse or a physician. It's the cleaning folks. It's the food services. It's the laundry folks. It's the parking folks. So it's been nice to kind of watch us truly become one as we navigate through this, which has been really cool to see. Yeah, that's really great. So Mary, I guess in closing, what would be the the big take-home point that you would want our listeners to remember from this podcast? Oh, the the big take-home point. I would say definitely plan as much as you can. <laughs> That's, that is our way of life. And be nice to anybody who's answering phones in the command center or <laughs> sending emails from the emergency management account. Um, because yeah, we're, we're all in it together and we're all stressed. But yeah, those would be my two main takeaways. That's great. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. Yeah. Thanks, Mary. This was amazing. <laughs> yeah. I learned a, a ton today. I appreciate you uh, coming. Thank you guys for talking. thinking of me for sure. And good yeah. luck. Thank you so much.